0: You are listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Hope is one of those things that just kind of never has an end, so powerful. So I got a note. How many hate Christmas? How many Grinches here? How many? None? Oh, one. Okay, good. Okay. Whew, I feel much better now. There is one who hates Christmas. Okay, good. I'm not one of them. I'm totally into it, like big time. Uh, Another bit of things. How many have seen Rogue One already? Okay, now keep your hands up. Look around here. See how few people are culturally with it. I mean, this is not okay. Like, what's the deal? I mean, you've got to go see the story. It's an incredible story. And you've got to know where it fits in the whole Star Wars stuff. And, and you just can't not be aware of that. Now, to be sure, the battle scenes are at least twice as long as they should be. Oh, I went to sleep during one of them. It just so long. is ridiculous. But the story is incredible. And uh, the scene of the whole thing, I mean, without a doubt, is when the new droid, uh, K2, what's his name? can't remember his name now. Uh, yeah, K2SO, Jen is running away from a battle, and K2 grabs her, throws her to the ground, and she's kind of laying there stunned. He says, congratulations, you're being rescued. Please do not resist. It's a great line. I mean, it's, it's the greatest line ever. And there's all kinds of stuff in there. And the key word for the whole thing is hope, without a doubt, without a doubt. uh, One of the things that I wonder about is Hatchimals. Hatchimals. Now, I would not know about Hatchimals except I have a nine-year-old granddaughter. And it's the gift to get this year, Hatchimals. How many have a Hatchimal? Okay, see, there's my point. You can't get them. I know you're all trying to get them. It just hasn't worked out yet. You know, Hatchimals are incredible. And when you look at Hatchimals, I mean, what they do, you can hear by the thing, they're they an animal, and they come in an egg. You've got to nurture the egg and make it happy, and then it starts pecking, and you've got to tap to let you know it's out there, and then it'll... Peck around, and it'll come out of the egg, and it's incredible. I mean, it's, it's the thing to do. It's Hatchimals are everything. How many can get a Hatchimal this year? I haven't sold you yet. What's that? $181. $181. Yeah, if you can get it, it's $181. Good luck. <laughs> but see, what do you wonder about? And what we're saying is that we wonder about another hatched one, if I can use that term, and his name is what? Who hatched a couple thousand years ago? Jesus. Now, he didn't hatch, but you get my point. Hatching the baby who is born is so powerful. We're going to take this story starting in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, turn on your phone or pull out your Bible or however you do it. Matthew chapter 1. And I want to read this incredible passage. Josh started with it last week. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived of her He did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of God for us to ponder this morning. Such a powerful passage. This whole Jesus God with us. So ask ourselves, what's in a name? What's in a name? For most of us, I mean, it doesn't mean anything. But I did a little research, I'm like that, and I looked up J, our lead pastor. Anybody know what J means? It means rejoice. Yeah. So it fits. I mean he's our guy. Absolutely. That just fits him to a T to rejoice together. So I kept looking. Matt means gift of God. Yep. Nailed it. Perfect. Right on. Rhonda. Well, it's a little different. It means good spear. No, I don't think so. What in the world does that mean? It's a weird name at that, but I looked up in the Urban Dictionary, totally non-authoritative, and it says that it means uh, nice, down to earth, good looking, one in a billion, nobody tops her. Totally right on. Urban Dictionary understands. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Totally. J, or Joby, Busher, he was here first service, and I looked at him and said, it means persecuted, and we intend to carry that out. (laughs) And Arliss said, do it. (laughs) Yeah. So I did the authoritative look at Gary, and it says, a really awful or mean person, someone people do not usually like, Gary is usually conceited and rude toward others. We'll just leave it at that. (laughs) That's spelled G E R O Y. You can decide whether it's talking about the other guy who misspells his name or me. What is this name? Take a look back in Genesis chapter 16. As we think about what's in a name. Because this is one of those stories. It's actually the first story in Scripture where we get a, a powerful interchange Around the meaning of a name, Genesis chapter sixteen. I'm going to start reading it at verse seven. This is a story of Hagar, who has been used and abused by Abraham and Sarah. So this is verse. Uh, let's see where do I want to start? It's verse seven, Genesis sixteen seven. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur, and he said, "Hagar, slave of Sarai." Where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from Mr. Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel added, I will increase your descendants so that they'll be too numerous to count. In verse 11, The angel of the Lord said to her, You are now pregnant. You will give birth to a son. And you shall give him the name, What's the name there? Ishmael. So you look at that name. What's the last two letters? L. What is that in Hebrew? That means God. So that's the name God. And the first part of that, Ishma, in Hebrew, means hears. What's the next line of the poem? For the Lord has heard of your misery. So here is... The angel telling her to name her child Ishmael. Because God has heard your misery. It's a powerful name for this very blessed baby. So the first thing, this is your blank, uh, is that a name tells us who we are. A name tells us who we are. You keep reading in the story. He'd be a wild donkey of man. His hand will not be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And then in verse 12, 13, she, Hagar, gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. What's the name there? Well, what's the Hebrew name for God? El. Sees, you all know that, right? What's the Hebrew for seed, Josh? Ra, or Roy. So that's the Hebrew name El Roy. So if we read that, we could say, you are El Roy, me. And you see this, and then she responds, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And here you have a name. This is Hagar giving a name to God. Some people say giving a name is an authoritative thing. Of course, it's not here. It's an understanding thing. She understands the God who sees and hears, so she gives him the name El Roy. He gives her baby the name Ishmael. So a name tells us who we are, and a name also tells us Whose we are. Because a name is about identity. A name is about character. But a name is also about relationship. And a name is often. Your third blank. Yeah, you're right. The PowerPoint's down. Uh, the, the third blank there. Is a name is often a sentence about God. So in this particular case. The name Ishmael. God hears or God sees, that name is a sentence about God. Let's take another example. Turn over to the book of Numbers. This is the one that Josh took us through last week. I'm sure Numbers is in this Bible. Numbers chapter 13. And when we look at at this Passage. Look at verse 16. Numbers 13, 16. Just one quick verse here. There's this whole line of things where... Is that the right reference? Yes. Numbers 13, 16. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hosea. Okay. You listened to Josh last week. What does Hoshia mean? Salvation. Mm -hmm. The son of Nun, the name of J Hoshia. So what's Hoshia? What's What's Hoshia? Salvation. What's the J? Well, that stands for Yahweh. That's the Yod. In Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, the Hebrew letters, that the four letters that are the personal name of God. So if you read that name, Joshua, as we say in English, or Yehoshua, in Hebrew, we're saying Yahweh is salvation. So he changes the name from salvation to Yahweh is salvation. And that could also mean Yahweh saves, or it could be a prayer. Yahweh save us so when he changes his name to Joshua it's a very significant change because it's talking about there is salvation in Yahweh what does that mean in that time he is the one Joshua who is going to lead the people into the land and they're in the land he is going they're going to see the salvation of the Lord now skip back over to Matthew chapter 1 skip back over to Matthew chapter 1 and here in Matthew chapter 1 Verse 21. She'll give birth to a son and you'll give him the name what? You'll give him the name what? Joshua. Joshua. Why does it say Jesus here? Well, Josh helped us last, last week when that name Yehoshua, comes to Yeshua in Greek, and then it goes through Latin or oh, it goes through Greek and Latin and German to English, and by the time it gets through all of those, for some reason, it becomes out Jesus. Figure out why, I don't know. What does Joshua mean? What does Joshua mean? Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh save us. And who gets that name? Who gets that name? Jesus does. And it's even more powerful. Because in the Greek, it says there. Because he will save his people from their sins. The the he, if we gave the, everything is there in the Greek, we would say he himself will save the people from their sins. It's an emphasis on this baby will save the people from their sins. Now, what does that mean? That he's going to save us from our sins. Another blank comes up there. He's going to save us not just from the... He's going to save us from our sins, not just the guilt of sin. We need saving from the guilt of sin. We've certainly broken God's law. And we need salvation from that guilt, that penalty of death that comes on those who have betrayed their relationship with God. But it's saying more than that. He's going to save us from our sins. What does that mean? that rebelliousness that falling into deception that's a part of our character he is going to redeem us from that he's going to draw us out just like he took Israel out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land he's going to bring us out of that bondage to just nasty stuff that's a part of our life and bring us into the glorious presence of Christ's likeness so what does that mean? It means that what we do is that we, have, that we will learn to love, serve, and obey, and forgive. It will teach us to love, serve, and forgive those who sin against us. How many want to do that? How many want to learn how to love, serve, and forgive those who sin against you. See, if you come in the name of Jesus, that's exactly what I want, because I want to be released from that bitterness and that anger. I want to be rid of the pain that comes through hanging on to those kinds of things. And when it says Jesus came to save us from our sins, that's what he's talking about. That's what he's talking about. Josh went through that in more detail last week. I just want to summarize what he did, because it's the first part of our passage. The second part of our passage, Immanuel. Okay, stick your finger there, in Matthew chapter one, and turn back to Isaiah chapter seven. I want to look at this passage that he's quoting here. So, run back to Isaiah chapter seven, and I want to look at the story that this is quoted from. Isaiah chapter seven. And you look in the story here and you've got the king Ahaz. He's the king of Judah. Jerusalem is a capital city. And what's happening here is two kings, two armies, are invading and they have put his city under siege. And they're very, very powerful. And what God is doing here is he is speaking in that context and they're invading. And what he says here. Starting at verse 7. This is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. What's he talking about here? The destruction of Jerusalem by these invading armies. For the head of Ephraim is Damascus. The head of Damascus is only resin. Six, five years, Ephraim, be too shattered be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Rezan, son. And he says this to Ahaz. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Now, what does faith mean for Ahaz as armies are surrounding his city, threatening to destroy him and everything that he rules? It means to believe that God is salvation. It means to believe Joshua. Why? Because God has promised it will not happen. If you do not stand firm your faith, you will not stand at all. Believe? Well, what does he do? Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz Ask the Lord your God for a sign. Where the deepest depths are the highest heights. What's God saying? Ahaz, I'll give you a sign to show you that you can depend on me. God invites him. Verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Like, what's going on here? Remember back to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. The people of God have just come across the Red Sea by God's mighty hand they've been delivered from Egypt they're on their side they're in the desert it's dry and it's hot and there's no food around and they begin to complain bitterly you just brought us out here to die and they put God to the test they will not believe God's promise and that's of course the wrong thing to do and Ahaz is citing that I'm not going to put God to the test but see the difference here is God has said I will give you a sign ask for anything and God responds, and Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of people? Will you also try the patience of my God also? His false spirituality shows that he actually does not believe God. Therefore, this is Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call his name Emmanuel. He'll be when he will be encouraged on anyone who knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Before the, because before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will now be laid to waste. What's it talking about in Isaiah chapter 7? In Isaiah chapter 7, it's talking about there will be a woman, a young woman, a virgin, who will have a baby and before that baby is old enough to make responsible decisions you will see those two kings destroyed so the sign in isaiah's day is that god is going to cut down and the baby that will come perhaps isaiah's wife that he's going to marry named in the next would do you see that name in the next chapter chapter 8 Hashbash. I mean, that's abuse to give a kid a name like that, isn't it? <laughs> what does that mean? It means it's, a, it's one of those divine names. But it's talking about the fact that before this baby can make responsible decisions, God is going to destroy these two nations that seem so powerful. That's the sign in Isaiah's day. Or is it? Take a look back at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 again, and read a little more closely. The Lord will give you a sign, and what's the sign? What's the sign? A virgin will conceive. Okay, now I know you're modern Americans. How many virgins conceive? How many virgins have babies? How many virgins conceive a baby in their womb? Well, now today, it, it could happen, I suppose... Because through in vitro fertilization or artificial insemination or something like that, it could possibly happen. What's the chance of it happening in Ahaz's day? Zero. 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 Virgins do not conceive. So when you see what it actually says there, it's not talking just about a baby born of Isaiah or in Isaiah's day. It's talking about something much bigger. It's talking about something that, boy, God is saying way more than that. Did, did Isaiah know there was going to be a baby born that would be the child of God? Well, yeah, clearly so, because in Isaiah chapter 9, for unto us a child will be born, and his name will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Absolutely, God knows that the baby is going to be Messiah and come that way. Isaiah 7.14 is looking into the future for a day of incredible promise. Now go back to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, there's going to be a baby born. And this baby will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will call him Emmanuel. What does El mean? God. What does Emanu mean? Take a guess. With With us. Good, good. Matthew translates it because people didn't know Hebrew. They were reading his gospel. At least some of them didn't. Emmanuel means God with us. But see, here's the difference. In Isaiah 7, it is a promise of a future deliverance, as well as a present deliverance. When Matthew quotes it, he's saying that future promise has become real, Today, Very different kind of thing. And he's saying this baby is God with us. I want to unpack that a little bit. I want to think of God with us. I want to think of God with us. And I want to think of God with us. First, God with us. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter three, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near for this was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. Now, who is John the Baptist talking about? When he quotes, he says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Who is the Lord that John the Baptist is talking about? That's Jesus. That's Jesus. But if you go back to Isaiah chapter 40, where this is quoted from, make straight the path of the Lord, make straight the highway for our God, what's the Lord there? Well, if you look there, it's four capital letters, L-O-R-D, which means what? That means that's Yahweh. So when Matthew quotes this promise from Isaiah 40 and applies it to Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, that's talking about Jesus. And Isaiah chapter 40, that's talking about Yahweh. So what's Matthew saying? Jesus is Yahweh, come among us. He is God with us. Then it says, God with us. What does God look like in the Old Testament? Well, again, turn back to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 is after the people have come through the wilderness. They're at the foot of the Mount Sinai, and God is going to speak to them. In Exodus, is our PowerPoint up yet, or is it Dead. Must be dead. Okay. Exodus chapter 19. A lot slower turning pages than it is flipping a PowerPoint. Exodus chapter 19. We see here that the people. um, Oh, look at verse uh, 16, for example. Matthew 19, or Exodus 19:16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud of the mountain, a very loud trumpet's blast. Everybody in the place trembled. Down at verse 18 Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on fire. The smoke builded up like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, the voice in the glory of the Lord appeared. What does God look like in the Old Testament? mountain trembling, smoke, fire, thunder, all that kind of stuff. At the end of the book of Exodus, at the end of Exodus, Moses has built a tabernacle and God comes into the tabernacle. What happens? Moses and the guys have to go out of the tabernacle because this fiery Shekinah is so bright that they can't be in the same place. The book of Job, what does God look like when he shows up to talk with Job? Looks like a cat five tornado. That's the Old Testament. Look to the New Testament. What does God look like in the New Testament? What does Matthew 1, what does God look like? What does God look like in Matthew chapter 1? What does he look like? He looks like a baby in a womb. Then what does he look like? Stand up. This is what God looks like. This is what God looks like. Thank you for being a great dad. That's what God looks like. That's what God looks like. In the Old Testament, this incredible, trembling, trembling, Mountain, this violent, thundering, powerful presence looks like that. A baby sleeping in a father's arms. How can this be? How can this be? The wonder and the hope that comes through there is unbelievable. Except it's real. What else does the God look like in the New Testament? If you look over in Ephesians, it looks like Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Such a powerful story. Verse 26. Paul is talking about the mystery that's been hid, kept hidden from ages and generations is now disclosed to God people, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now I stop and think about just a minute. What does God look like? In Jesus' day it looks like a sleeping baby. What does it look like today? How many feel pregnant with God today? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Except it's not a baby in a womb that only happened one time. What it does look like, though, is that incredibly powerful presence that makes mountain trembles, that runs people out of the temple when it shows up, the cat-five tornado that talks to Job, is in us. That very same powerful presence. So it looks like a newborn baby in Jesus' day now looks like a powerful personal presence in us. And in John 14, Jesus says, Not only will I be with you, but I will be in you. The with us God. God with us. But God with us. God with whom? Who's God with? All people? What says his people? Is God with all people? Well, in one sense, I would say yes. He is with everyone in the sense that he is inviting them. Will you let me be the God who saves, Jesus. Will you let me be to you, Yahweh, who saves people from their sin? He's saying to all of us, will you let me be with you and in you? So what do you have to do to receive that with us? Simply say, I want your healing. I need your saving. And he will do it. What's the limit on it? None. None. I got a message this week from a woman I've worked for a long time. Her life is nothing short of hell. Her family is so evil. I've known her for a long time. She sent me a message on Friday and said, I just got the most horrible news of my life. My, my brother Chris just took his life. He called me and didn't say anything. Wouldn't talk to me, really. And he took his life. And she said in the wrenching agony of that moment, is God punishing him because of his sin? And so what I could say to her in absolute confidence Jesus came to save Chris from his sins. And if he's received Jesus Christ as his Savior, he didn't lose it just because he did the horrible, sinful act of suicide. How come? Jesus came to save us from our sins. And I said to her, against the teaching of the church she grew up in, there is no sin too big to be forgiven at the hand of the powerful God who comes as a baby, dies for our sins, risen for our newness of life. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for people like me who have been Christian for a long time? The question really is, will I make room for Emmanuel? What does that mean? Forty-nine years ago Thursday, Sherry and I saw each other for the very first time. And I would say there was a bang that happened that first day, except I'd be lying to you. It didn't happen. It took about five more days for that to happen. And almost forty-nine years ago, I said I do to Sherry and she to me. And the question is, in all the busy stuff of my life, will I make room for my pretty wife? There's a lot of things that demand my time. Will I put some of that aside and make time to just hang out with my pretty wife? Same thing with Jesus. Will I make time in my life busy with all the stuff that I do and all the stuff that we do and all the busyness that happens in this season, will I intentionally make time to spend with Jesus? What does that mean? Well, it means, what are the two great commandments from Jesus? We looked at them a couple weeks ago. What's the first one? Love God. second is, love your neighbor. We do that. Will you make time to meditate on God's word? Will you make time to pray? I mean, like really commune with God? Will you make time to serve your unlovable neighbor? Will you make place in your finances to support the mission, vision of grace and other things? Or God points you? I mean, that's what it means. Will I make room for Jesus in my life? See, that's the question that Emmanuel brings into our life? Will we receive him as Yahweh who saves as Emmanuel, God with us? And will I live that out so that I can experience the power and the peace of his presence that comes? Will I make room for Jesus or Christmas? Will my hope be in Hatchimals or in Emmanuels how to do that that's the question thank you for listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church for more information about service times and ways to connect visit us online at gracecc.net